0: welcome to episode 55 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello Ben. Third time lucky mate. Hi there Steve. <laughs> Third time lucky. Well we're over to Brisbane, Australia for this episode with the multi-talented and very cool Sayer Vogel. A fellow podcaster and lifelong musician, this was a very easy and hugely enjoyable conversation
1: Ben. It was super easy from start to finish wasn't it and we were pretty excited about getting on the call with Saya, weren't we because we've been indulging in her very very wonderful podcast um for some time so it was great to actually come face to face with her um across the internet and uh yeah it was fantastic.
0: It was her podcast is awesome and and you kind of puts onto it to say uh check check this out and uh yeah i just binged pretty much every episode up you know that that she that she had uh up at the time and and i just really love it i love the way she speaks to people i mean it's just you know it's it's um it's my sweet spot that sort of uh behind the scenes (laughs) oh yeah 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 like you know it's we are we are um Coming from a very similar place, aren't we? M- mining similar territory, but um, she has a way of conversing with people, and 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 also unearthing new music from the from that podcast as well as a lot of Australian artists. I've not. Heard yeah, of yeah, it. no,
1: it's, yeah, it's really, it's a, it's clearly a, a bit of a passion project for her in that kind of respect, uh, aspect of it, and and for me, it was a bit of you know a very fortunate kind of stumble upon that I'd been trawling to kind of find interviews with um, Gareth Lydiard from tropical fuck storm oh, yeah. and uh, and that was what took me to that podcast it was kind of top of the list and then like you say it was just so joyous to the the way that she holds herself with people is really really easy it just kind of mm. seems to uh, gently nurture people along in a really kind of easy mild manner. you know ability to kind of willfully share with people um yeah, it's it's uh it, it, it allows people to relax and just kind of talk in a really normal way. And like you say, it is it does feel like we've got a kind of sort of parallel pathway running. You know, the kind mm-hmm. of the motivations for the podcasts and the kind of um some of the similar themes and stories that have come out through Padded and through and through Hearsay, it feels like it's it was a really good marriage, isn't it? Yeah,
0: def- definitely. She what she's done that's really clever with the podcast is, um, people are, are aware that they're going to need to share some stories when they go on there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so people, I think I don't know if people necessarily come armed with stuff, but they know that that's the vibe of it. I want your stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they have some, yeah. and uh, and I, and I love it, and and I and I also really enjoyed the fact that she brought that into our conversation that was really nice
1: yeah there's a ton of humor in it isn't there loads yeah. load, loads of it on offer loads to be had
0: yeah and a really fantastic musical story that Saya has as well really unique not like anything we've heard before as well you know close close working relationship with her with her brother and some of the really creative things that they've done together and her her now husband as she talks about but also the 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 um the grant that she got for to to go over to New York, and all of the stories that kind of that come out of that, it's a really it's great. really fascinating. Fact, yeah, tale. and the fact
1: that, that that you know the grant and that links into the kind of mu- the Australian musical heritage, the background of it, which again kind of touches on the stuff we were talking about earlier, um, and the sort of paying homage to to the yeah the Australian rock royalty, as it were, and and I love I love some of the stuff that she had to contribute um there was there was loads of humor but there was also lots of kind of pathos and the stuff around reflecting on um missed opportunities or success or the the kind of the myriad of pathways that open up through either having success or going in a completely different different direction with something and and where that might take you on your kind of journey and then also some some, some fascinating insight into, um, you know, the the musicianship through study versus the musician through ship through instinct, which mm. I found was a really like on point answer, and it really struck a chord with me. And I was, yeah, yeah, I wasn't expecting to get that answer, and, but it, yeah, was very very glad to hear what she had to say about that.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed, and and having. Uh, An ease with talking about regret, which I think is rare. Mm. You don't generally, you know, to, to 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 speak as easily about the really wonderful experiences and speaking about sort of having a, a, a regret in the same way. I think that's that's I really admired that about that uh, part of the conversation. And, uh, um, yeah, and and enjoyed it. You know, it's it's uh, important not to shy away from those sorts of things, and she does it
1: again with that sort of trademark ease that she had through
0: the. <laughs> the whole conversation
1: she does she does and w- once people have listened to uh to this episode of Padded envelope there's just an like there's so much on hearsay to go and trawl back And mm. when you when you come across a podcast or um you know yeah or something creative that you really enjoy and then you realize there's Fifty episodes or sixty episodes to go to go and mine your way your way back through. Some of the people who you know felt very familiar, you know, like Spiral Stairs and uh, and Jeff Tweedy and people like that. And then, like you say, other people that had no idea about, but the conversations that come out of that um, are really insightful and uh, and really interesting.
0: Yeah, she does it well as she does music. Uh, definitely worth going and, and and having a listen to to um, say's back catalogue. Um, uh, but yeah, because there's some there's some really interesting stuff in there and bands that I'd not come across before as well. You know, and 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 then there's a that you can go down that rabbit hole of like the the family tree as it sort of spreads out. Of the yeah, she's been involved with it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, our sincere thanks to Say for coming on the show. Uh, definitely check out her podcast hearsay um her music and her fantastic felt keyboards that she makes (laughs) there's a link in the show notes they are (laughs) just wondrous they are so great and i really really hope she makes the one that she said she was going to make in the episode uh because that would be brilliant um and before you swipe onto your next podcast please help us out with a five-star review and subscribe to the show
1: Yes, and on that note, let's go over to episode fifty-five of Songs from a Padded Envelope with the wonderful Saya Vogel.
2: Um. <clears throat> well, that's a good start, isn't it? <laughs> my name is Saya Vogel. Uh, I play synthesizers mainly, and the song that you're going to hear today is a song off my second album called Beat in Time."
0: Well, thanks for coming on the show, Saya. We've been really enjoying your podcast hearsay which we absolutely recommend um how have you found the creative process of making the podcast and has it thrown up any surprises for you
2: um i really love making the podcast and i think i've i've told the story on my podcast which by the way is um spelt h-e-a-r-s-e-j because my name is s-e-j-a so um i didn't quite think that through people can't quite pronounce it um, <laughs> but so I started my podcast because I, I, I just realized that everybody has a story, you know, that seems like a silly thing to say, but I'm sure you guys have sort of discovered that too. Um, and the story I'm talking about was, um, I had, I played a solo show. Well, I had a, my own band, um, at the time supporting Goldfrap. and I was, um, playing this show in front of maybe 2000 people supporting goldfrap and literally everything that i played on stage broke so my i was playing my only polyphonic synth the juno 60 um stopped completely stopped working um my like my monophonic synth stopped working my guitar pedal started buzzing i looked over at my friend who was um doing some shaker and the shaker like sort of fell off the keyboard and broke in two and all the balls went all over the stage. Like it was honestly it, like the things nightmares are made of. And, um, and I remember coming off stage, I could only play for 20 minutes cause I literally had no instruments left to play. And I came off stage and I cried. And um, I think that's probably the only time I've ever cried after a gig. And I went to, um, I had two friends there, who uh, Australian um, musicians Kwan from the band I played in Regurgitator and Dan Kelly, and Kwan and Dan took me to a cafe afterwards, and we had a hot chocolate, and they told me all of their worst show stories, huh. and we laughed so much, and it made me feel so much better, and I thought I just want to collect these stories, not necessarily worst, but you know everyone has something insanely crazy that's happened to them at a gig. And um, yeah, so I think that that's the, one of the greatest joys for me is hearing people's stories, laughing about things that were possibly traumatic at the time. Um, yeah, and I've, al- I've always been really interested in people, so I'm sure you guys can relate to that. It's just really fun hearing what people have to say.
1: Indeed, I mean, I think one of the things we found is you know the sort of commonality amongst musicians and the kind of there's some real strong themes that have come through in the conversations that we've had with people um mm. uh, you know often around connectivity but what what would you say are the themes that have come up for you through through making your podcast
2: I guess yeah, I think that connection is a ma- is a massive one, and I think that um I mean, everybody, everyone has a reason for making music, which I, I love finding out why and what started it. And um, and I think that, yeah, there's there's this theme of, um, a big theme of family and the, the connection that people have with their families when they're starting to make music. Um, and I, I really love that. Um, yeah, I think, and then for me personally, I think that, the connection for me is has is and has always been um, one of my favorite things about the music industry, specifically in Australia, where everyone is really close. You know, I I've always felt like I I love the fact that you can go on tour with someone for a week and be friends for life. You know, and I felt like that was always weirdly my role in the bands that we've played with is is keeping in touch with people and um you know having these like long-lasting friendships which is so so lovely.
0: It really comes through in the podcast actually your that spirit that you just described within yourself really comes through in in the way that you speak with people you know it's 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 entirely authentic and genuine and there's a lot of sympathy with people's situations yeah. <laughs> and also a lot of yeah like you said shared shared hilarity and I've, I've kind of been b- binging the show over the last couple of weeks and uh, it's and, and hearing some of some people's stories threw up a few stories for, for me as well and then uh, uh last weekend i was listening to the episode with um davy from UMI oh yeah and i'd completely forgotten but the band i played in played some shows with UMI uh when they were in the UK great and I'd completely forgotten about it yeah uh, Davey wasn't in the band at the time this is like
2: that would have been a while ago then mid, ni- yeah. mid 90s
0: 96 probably yeah and I
3: remember
0: <laughs> I'm only sharing this because it really made me laugh when because <laughs> I'd completely forgotten this happened I was thinking, oh yeah uh this was a, in a, a gig in Portsmouth at the Wedgwood Rooms and I was and i walked into the dressing room and the three guys from umi were in there and no one else and i i wasn't particularly confident i was reasonably sort of shy and a little bit oh, all right <laughs> how are you doing? and uh they're like oh yeah we're just uh, we're just discussing our um our pretentious book club that we've started <laughs> on tour it's <laughs> <was> like oh. <laughs> oh, oh yeah he's like yeah he's reading uh, dostoevsky and uh he's reading and i can't remember what else but like you Old know toy. fairly pretentious yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, uh, and pretend i said oh can can i be in can i be in it and uh, you know <laughs> and they just kind of looked at each other like who the fuck is well, this guy <laughs> yeah who's this guy inviting himself into our pretentious book club they said oh yeah what are you reading I went oscar wilde and they said what said so the complete works and i genuinely pulled it out of my bag and I had the complete. oh come on <laughs> <mate>. <laughs> uh, so they let me in yeah
2: lovely <laughs> I, wonder I, about <laughs> I wonder if they still have that i wonder if they still have i'll ask when i get i'll get one of them on the podcast i'll ask them <laughs> oh yeah
1: do do I, yeah but have Brilliant.
2: you had one of those um strange show experiences apart from that one have you had something that sticks in mind where
1: oh, we definitely well I, I'm not n- not sure collectively because we do play in a band together at the moment but one of the bands that the band that we play in now together that Steve wasn't in at the time we did a we played all the way over to uh to Sweden to play a show at um, a festival called Emma Boda It was a really really nice little festival in a beautiful setting and we got all the mm. way there we had a very very cranky setup running a Uh, like backing tracks through a DAP machine and all all sorts of stuff that you shouldn't really do and we got there and and we had half of the stuff loaded up onto a zip drive and the zip drive got onto the stage and the zip drive wouldn't work um so someone drove about three hours to go and get another zip drive and they brought it back (laughs) and uh, and we broke that one as well no and we, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so we um and similar to you i think we could play out of a, a like a half an hour 45 minute set we could play one song so we went oh, all the way to street, sweden geez. and played one song yeah
3: did but, you
1: um, get paid yeah you got we got paid with oh, a lovely time
0: But you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I've got it all on film. I was there filming it, so I've got it. The 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 thing is, the tapes are buried, but not allowed to watch them.
1: The thing is, you live and learn, (laughs) don't you? Because, like, uh, the the when they happen, those experiences are fucking awful, aren't they? But we 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 have had so many so many nice nights laughing our heads off about that. You know, I you know, kind of, you get over these things, don't you?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the interviews I did recently. You know, they they told a horrible story, and I said, "How long did it take you to think it was funny?" And he was like, "Oh, maybe maybe a year." <laughs> and then it, yeah. that's a good story. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a really bad one. <laughs> At least with the golf one, it was just like half an hour. But it really went the the pendulum swung from the far left, you know, to the far right. I was very very distraught.
1: How easy was it for you to get back on stage after that?
2: Um, actually it wasn't too bad, but I, I never played a Juno 60 live again. So I ended up buying, um, a Dave Smith prophet 08, which was, you know, like sort of brand new at the time. And, um, I, that's been my main poly keyboard for live since then. I think I, that was a big eye opener for me where I thought, I don't think I should rely on keyboards made in 1984 um for a big live show like I think if you have one of them on stage or two it's fine but it but it can't be your main uh road horse you know unless you're really rich and can bring several um if you know if you're just like playing it you know playing the little little shows or whatever I think you just yeah you need to you need to get better gear well, not better. You know what I mean. More reliable. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, just schlepping your gear around yourself, and you know, I mean, the the band we're in, the flotation the toy warning, the set the setup on stage is there's two keyboard, two keyboard players, and three, three keyboard. But the keyboards that we use are, I mean, they're just so old and
3: yeah.
0: battered, and, <laughs> yeah. and haven't been replaced. <laughs> but we, well, it's just an antiquated setup.
1: <laughs> we, we, we do have, we do have at least two backups of everything now yeah just in case
2: yeah yeah that's yeah. what you yeah. need yeah
0: yeah i mean we could share horror stories but...
2: i know. I, I feel I, like I... we could everyone has one or at least at oh, least two.
0: i like how you phrase the question though in the podcast because it's th- your story from playing music or being involved in music um so it's not just about shows it can be mm-hmm you know, something else. And that's thrown out some really interesting stuff from people yeah. as well, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, one of my all-time faves was um, actually just a, a few episodes ago. Stu from King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard told a story about their their urine tank on their bus ex- exploding on a ferry. <laughs> 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 Which I loved. <laughs> oh, my God. I
0: mean, what? I nothing more right. need be said. It's just... <laughs> Oh uh,
2: Brilliant. And my I... other favourite one was sorry, I could just tell at my favourites for for a whole episode. But the other one that I couldn't stop laughing about was um, what Jeff Tweedy from Wilco told a story about got, uh, playing a sh- show with patty Smith. patty Smith <laughs> was they were going to play a song together, or they I think their managers had arranged it, and then um he came in the room when you know before the show and said, I've heard that you might need help on guitar. Like this is after rehearsing the song for ages by himself at home and she was like oh yeah can you tune this and like just the song. <laughs> oh,
1: lovely that's so <laughs> great
2: yeah great
1: you you must have had quite a few pinch yourself moments interviewing some of the some choice guests on the show is there who's who's kind of top of your wish list if you could choose i don't know three people that you wanted to, to have on mm. the podcast
2: good question I think I've I've always wanted to interview uh Damon Albarn. Mm. Um I don't think that will ever happen, but I think he would be he would be interesting on a you know on a good day. You wouldn't want to get him on a bad day. I feel like he would be <laughs> he wouldn't be very chatty. I've seen some interviews with him where he hasn't wanted to be there. Um Yeah, maybe I'd love to get I think because I'm such a like I grew up listening to like the whole Brit pop scene. So I think all of those people, I'd probably just know heaps about them from reading Enemy and Select and stuff. So, you know, I'd love to have Damon and Jarvis and um, Griff from Super Furries and mm. all of all of that crew would be. Yeah, they would fulfill some teenage dreams <laughs> for me yeah I think
1: I think Damon on a good day could be amazing because he's I mean yeah. he's, a poly, he's a polymath isn't he the, the man's kind of his creative bounds that just seem to sort of they don't have any kind of uh, limit to them really do they the way he's kind of yeah. stretching I think totally admire the way he stretches himself with his musicality and involving you know connections with other people
2: yeah and then probably like my biggest one is probably Mark mothersbauer from Devo but i think that one i might you know i met, might perish before i <laughs> would be able to say anything i'd i would just be really really starstruck because i've met him a few times before and um was always a, a weirdo i couldn't quite get
0: <laughs> <laughs> i love that feeling I, I hate it and i love and i love that feeling i mean it's worth just reaching out isn't it because we've had a handful of people on it because we, we really enjoy speaking to people who are sort of across that spectrum of experience and success, you know, from naught to a hundred, you know, and, and, um, but reaching out to people who uh, maybe we've got, uh, who, who we really love and uh, getting to speak to, um, Carl Coughlin uh, yeah. from, um, micro Disney Fatma mansions. And I mean, he's my, he's my absolute all time musical is hero.
2: Mark yeah, it for sure. <laughs> and it
0: was it was such a shot in the dark. Like so I'm asking, I'm going to ask because he became active on social media with new music about, and he'd never done that before. And so it was just, a, I'm just going to ask. And it was one email, and he said, mm-hmm. "Yeah,"
3: I- and that
0: was. Oh man, I just yeah, <laughs> I
3: didn't know Never.
0: what to do with myself for a long time. So oh, uh,
2: all right, okay. <laughs> what we gonna What we gonna do? Uh,
0: and then he was, and then it was, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, really oh, lovely.
2: Oh, so good. I, it makes me happy when, um, when that stuff happens. It's like a weird sort of fated loveliness. I mean, I my the band that I was playing in for years, Regurgitator, got to support Devo on their Australian tour in um, 2008. And I was the best two weeks of my life. I got to see Devo, you know, five times. Um, I got to play with them. I got to meet them and hear their stories. You know, they all have such amazing stories. And it really was amazing. But I did feel like a complete and utter weirdo the entire time. Like I felt like I was (laughs) just trying to play it cool and I I don't know if I managed it.
0: it's a tough it's so tough is it when you just hold people in that that esteem and mm. oh man what did
2: yeah because you don't want to say you're the reason why I play music
3: yeah that would, did that, you
2: know no <laughs> I <laughs> probably maybe I, I did but no I think I remember um trying to play it cool there was one moment where because I had I did this this kind of dick move where I um I played two monophonic the same monophonic keyboards um, I had two th- two of them on a stand, and I'd and I'd instead of just like playing a keyboard that you could play more than one note on, I played two monophonic synths, and I sort of like would play like k- like chords using w- one each, which was really inconvenient. But I think I sort of did it because um, I thought it would be cool and funny and. Um, Anyway, there's one show where they were watching us play side of stage and there was a couple of songs that Regurgitated play where I don't there's uh, no keyboards on it. Like they they do some like heavier sort of like hardcore thrashy stuff. So I would like walk off stage in that and I was standing next to Mark and he leaned over and he said, I, I really like your SH one oh ones and that was the best moment <laughs> of my life. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, fantastic oh And I was like
3: Is I'm, that I the, the... did it. <laughs> oh, just
0: brilliant, and that's the, such a great keyboard to be doing it with. That's so cool.
3: That's yeah. double cool. Yeah.
0: Oh, that that standing at the side of the stage, like having so. We played some shows with Faith No More, oh, and yeah. having Billy stood at the side of the stage because I was playing bass guitar in that band, mm-hmm. and he like one note from him, and you know it's him, right? Yeah. The sound and the way he plays is just unmistakable. Standing at the side of the stage, and we were quite a Sort of quite a, a bouncy band. <laughs> I mean, we weren't as we weren't as you know fierce as Faith no more, and uh, he was laughing at the side of the stage, oh. and I don't know why. I don't know whether it was just he was going with the exuberance of the performance, or whether it was like, oh look at the state of them, terrible, <laughs> and laughing at us.
3: Oh no, us. I'm sure he wasn't.
0: And I don't know. I mean, he was lovely. He was really nice, no, I but couldn't... I didn't have the.
1: He you was, know. he was with you, mate.
0: He was with you for sure. Right? You think he was yeah. definitely
2: I'm not, with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> Isn't it nice though? When because my first experience of that was when um my first band supported Supergrass and they all watched us from side of stage and I, I remember thinking, that's such a lovely thing to do and it meant so you know I probably would have been like 18 or 19, um, at that point and I think just it meant so much to me that they would make the time to watch my little band play um and i've always remembered that you know like i always try and watch the support bands now well
1: when we, when we were first starting out on the on the london scene steve or, you know small gigs and that you always did that didn't you you always mm-hmm. you always made a point of going to check out the support bands you know just to kind of as, as a matter of marker respect even if you were only there for like half a song or a song is you know Can't shake people out. People are always deserve some, yeah.
2: Well, you you know, like sometimes I feel it's so unfair when a band practices their ass off to support, you know, be first on on a bill of five bands, and two people watch them play. And I just think like everyone deserves to be seen and heard after they've put so much effort into it. I've been there, you know. I've played so many shows to not people, yeah, Um, and it just means a lot when people try to be there.
0: Yeah, I agree, absolutely. Well, look, we, we should maybe talk a little bit about your musicianship and your journey into music. Do you want to share a little bit about your dis- your first discovery of music and when you when it kind of landed for you that it was something that you wanted to explore a bit more?
2: Well, I think that um not uncommonly the the songs that I started loving as a kid was definitely, you know, the Beatles and the Kinks and the Hollies and the Searchers and, you know, all of that like super um, 60s melodic pop stuff. My dad has a really amazing vinyl collection and it was always something we did on a Saturday or Sunday morning. We'd put on a record and make breakfast and sing along to the songs. And I think that very early on I started singing the harmonies. I think I was just really drawn to trying to harmonise with whatever lead Was happening Um, and that's easy to do with the Beatles and the Searchers and the Hollies you know because it's like quite simplistic sort of um, major stuff Um, but I don't think I truly thought I was a really shy kid and I don't I I definitely knew that I didn't want to play in front of people like I had this overwhelming shyness and and I was quite scared like I was that kind of kid that couldn't call the pizza place to order pizza because I was too scared to talk to strangers on the phone. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess, it, yeah, it was funny when, um, when I joined the first band, so my first band was called Sekiden, and it was with my brother and, um, my now husband. And, uh, at the time I was 16 and, um, my brother was, two years older than me and then Simon was two years older than that and um and the only reason why I was in the band was because their bass player had stopped turning up to practices and they um and they had just bought a Korg Delta which was like a really early uh, monophonic Korg um synth that had sort of like keyboard setting and then a string setting um and my brother was like I'll say it because I'd had piano lessons um up to that point, and my, and my brother Mirko was like, oh, say I can maybe play some bass notes um, during this rehearsal. And so I started playing along, and it was – it something happened. I think that in that room, we all kind of went, oh, this sounds really cool, and um, it was really exciting. And, I, you know, and I was only 16, and I thought, well, this is just like an in-the-room in the, in the room kind of practice thing, and I never have to do this in front of anybody. And then a a few weeks later, um, we got asked to play, or I suppose we, I guess my brother and Mirko got, uh, my brother and Simon probably organised it without me knowing, um, a party and I shit myself. I was so scared. I was like, what do you mean we're going to play in front of people? And then it ended up, there's a really cute photo actually of those early gigs where we're all looking at our feet you know, we're all like, there's no, you can't see any eyes. <laughs> we're all just like so scared and shy. And it would have sounded really cute, I think, you know, just like three kids playing little synth pop songs. Um, yeah, that's how it started. But I was really against it for so long. And it took me probably like a couple of years to start enjoying it because I was sort of re- reluctantly pulled into it. I never really thought that I wanted to do it. But then once I started and I started, you know, and I was listening to bands like The Cars and Kraftwerk and Devo, you know, the, the big three for me, probably those three bands. Mm. Um, and I started going like, oh, that's, that's the coolest sound I've ever heard. I want to play synthesizer in, in bands and sound like that.
1: How did you get introduced to those bands? Who was who was bringing music to you, Saya?
2: Uh, it was definitely my brother and Simon. So, and I, and I think it, like when I think back on it, it was probably more Simon, um, because he was older than us, and you know at uni, and he would he would be like, yeah, he would he would bring us. I rem- and I remember really specifically like he would give me CDs like listen to this Morrissey album or listen to this Stereolab record or, um, you know, later on, um, yeah, like, yeah, I just, like he was very much like wanted to share his, you know, listen to Ride, listen to um, Teenage Fan Club um, and all of that stuff really opened up our world.
0: There's some lovely Teenage Fan Club stories in, uh, uh, was it the Robert Forster episode? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, indeed. yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh. I love Teenage Fan Club so much and yeah that story that you're talking about I mean he had such beautiful stories about Grant um Grant McLennan from the go-betweens and Mm. um learning songs from you know or teaching Norman songs and yeah it was just so lovely. We we were
1: talking about that episode before before the Mm. interview tonight because I had to listen to it twice I loved hearing him speak so much he's kind of uh, his longevity and his journey and the kind of their from their quite sort of primitive, primitive kind of infancy and the way he, the way he carried himself throughout your interview was so charming and so endearing yeah. i thought nah.
2: yeah he's such a beautiful man and such a um, i don't I think for years I always thought he was an enigma because Grant was such an open friendly person. You know, like you'd see, you'd see Grant sitting at the bar in Brisbane um, in the nineties and early two thousands. He he would just be always there, and he'd always be friendly, and he'd always be talking to people. and um, And then Robert was a lot more private, and um, and it took me years to get to know him really. and And then now we've formed this really beautiful friendship. Um, and because his wife is German, and I'm really good friends with her, and there's this sort of lovely German connection between us. Um, but yeah, I always, I'm always su- not surprised, but when I see him play, he completely changes. Like he's he's this super like polite sort of shy man, and then on stage, he just is a powerhouse. He's such a force, you know. That's amazing. You,
1: you got to play with him. What was that experience? What's that experience been like for you?
2: yeah i've i've played with him a bunch now um i love yeah i just love so one of my favorite memories because i i've supported him a few times and um and then he also sang on my record um one of my favorite memories was when we were we did a, a german song together on my record and we had the microphone set up so we were facing each other um and I remember, uh, you know, I was closing my eyes at first to sing with him, and then when I opened my eyes, I could see him do his like Robert dancing, like while he was singing along to my song, and that was just such a highlight for me. I was like, oh, this is this is so cool.
0: That's <laughs> amazing. I was nervous for you in that moment when you said that that's what you'd done. I was thinking,
2: <gasps> God, can
3: you do that? <laughs>
0: I almost closed my eyes <laughs> while you told the story. It was really <laughs> it was cool. It was really cool. Whose idea was it to to have the, the, the mics so you could face each other?
2: My brother, he was Mirko was recording that session and he just thought it would be it would be a nice connection to do it together. And also because it was in German and Robert is um you know, his German is really good, but he said he had to practice a bunch with his wife on pronunciation. I think he put a lot of pressure on himself to get it right. Um, and I think that, you know, seeing me and my mouth move, um, was helpful. So, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Lovely. Yeah.
0: That's a bold move from your brother as well.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah. Fantastic. So go- going back to you, uh, just your, those early days and stuff, when, when you started to, um, discover keyboard and were you, so were you just self-taught or did you go and seek out some lessons? Or did you have someone teaching you?
2: Um, so I had piano lessons for years, um, yeah. but I was not really, you know, I was not one of those kids that practised a lot. I would, I'd try and figure out songs, you know, like I'd try and go today I want to learn how to play Spicks and the, and the Specs by the Bee Gees and, you know, that would be like that really simple piano bass line or like today I'm going to, and I will just learn it by ear. Today I'm going to learn Saltwater, Wells in My Eyes by Julian Lennon, you know. That's really like dating my references. But you know what I mean? I was like really into that kind of um, trying to learn songs that I, that I would hear on the radio or that I liked at the time. And I was never much for trying to learn how to read sheet music. And I think, you know, that's what they try and teach you at piano lessons. So I would always try and remember how to play it. And instead of reading the music, I would just do it by remembering And that's not, I'm sure my teacher could tell straight away that I wasn't, you know, following the notes properly or... um,
0: That's an early indicator of a a life in rock and roll, though, isn't (laughs) it? (laughs) I want to play it, but you ain't teaching me. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way. So, um, but yeah, but what that also meant, I guess, was that I didn't really learn uh, classical music very well. You know, like I would... I, I remember trying to learn Moonlight Sonata and stuff, and uh, but again, I would like try and remember it. And then that's a really hectic song to try to remember because it's also so samey. Um, and so, yeah, so then I, so I knew how to play piano a little bit and I think that keyboard or synthesizers were such a saviour for me because I've always said that playing synths is more about trying to get cool noises out of a machine rather than playing something incredible like it's more about it's more about intuition rather than classical Mm. training and so um that's what I really loved about it and then for years when I when I started playing in Sekiden you know I was the bass in that band so a lot of my my early um keyboard lines were very much like just held bass notes and then I'd play a lead with the right hand um and so that, yeah, that sort of really dictated a lot of stuff, uh, like how I would play music for a long time after that. And I really had to train myself out of holding down my left hand, mm. because I was yeah I was just so used to doing it that way for so long. And now, on my on my newer records and my newer songs that I'm that I've been writing over the last, I guess, ten years, I've really had to train myself to to write a bass line, not just hold down a note
1: it sounds like you value kind of being intuitive very much so in terms of being a musician and i know in, the, in the interview with robert you would ask him a really interesting question about whether whether musicians these days might be too proficient in a range of instruments and maybe that does that take some of the innocence out of being a musician i don't know is, is that something that chimes with you particularly
2: well, it's interesting because I, I'm i a fan of both. You know, I have, um, there's this incredible band in Brisbane called Ballpark Music that are just like the, uh, the most amazing pop band and they all went to u- university to study music. That's, where, that's how they met and they're all incredible at their instruments and they're one of my favourite Brisbane bands and then, you know, and then on, on the flip side, there's nothing that I love more than someone who can't play their instrument properly but manages to get something beautiful out of it and maybe works with within the limitations of not being able to play um, you know they could they can only or they can only play three chords so they write something amazing using those three chords um, So yeah I, I, I see it both ways. I think I asked Robert that question because go-betweens were especially at the start, um you know with when when Lindy was drumming um they were all self taught and so mm. there was something really special about that band getting a lot of attention with someone who wasn't particularly amazed you know they were like a Meg White kind of situation where they probably got attention because it wasn't it wasn't tight um and yeah, there's something so lovely about that
0: yeah for great, sure. I, I think great answer e- great answer yeah I'd, I think I'd echo that as well you made me think about um, um, Black Midi which is like my favorite record from last year and they're I mean just ridiculous I mean they're all precocious talents aren't they they're all like obviously but studying and met at the the uh, you know music school and you know st- incredibly talented and but putting it to creative putting their creative energy into it has, cre- has has generated this incredible sound that doesn't sound like anything else and i mean and it and it is i mean it's as muso as it gets right it's just crazy yeah. complex i absolutely love it but they're throwing things into it that are just but it is all from that studied um foundation um i think shout uh, the meg say um talking about meg white is a really good shout actually because mm. you one you know, you, you only need to hear like a kick and snare for one bar, and you know it's her. Yeah, I mean, how hard is that to do? To be that cool.
2: distinct? It's so, it's cool. Just so cool.
0: That yeah, band it's so is so cool,
2: amazing. And it would have been such a different band if they'd had someone who was like kick-ass, math rock person. You know, it would have been. It wouldn't. It would have lost its edge. It would have lost its specialness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she was amazing is amazing yeah Uh, do you have any memories uh do do you recall the first time when you were playing um as a with a with with other people um where it all just kind of locked together and you got that sense of oh wait a second there's something going on here you know when you when it becomes unspoken and you're all in it at the same moment
2: yeah I definitely remember that it was probably that time in the in my brother's bedroom, you know, when when we all realized that it sounded really cool with a Korg Delta on bass and um and a and a little lead on on the side and and I don't know, it just there's yeah definitely something felt really special about that. But it's funny to talk about that band because when I listen to Sekiden now, which you know really so super rarely happens, but sometimes it'll come on at some kind of place or whatever and I always I hardly recognize it um it it was so long ago I suppose that I feel disconnected from it now or I don't feel like that specialness about it anymore which is kind of sad but I suppose it makes sense where you just you know you move on and your musical sensibilities move away from what you were 20 years ago um yeah it's funny it's funny to think about it
1: (laughs) how how soon after that bedroom rehearsal did you find yourselves in the studio recording some music
2: good question probably it was probably we'd recorded uh some stuff on four track which isn't really the same but um i think we did a lot of home recording because this was probably it was like the mid mid to so late 90s um and we had a friend who had a Pro Tools rig and we recorded at, at his house and it was just the house that he lived in with his girlfriend and they'd have to move the, the bed and the mattress to the side to, for us to, you know, set up a drum kit. And um, so it, it never really felt like I didn't go into a proper studio for probably 10 years i think you know like it was all very much like bedroom recording straight away but it did feel i remember feeling nervous like when i'd go up to do my vocal takes i would be really nervous um not so much when i was because i guess with pro tools it's so forgivable like you can just start again it's not like recording to tape or anything um and he was really so this guy Bryce Moorhead. He recorded our first two EPs, and he was very, very meticulous. He ended up recording a, a lot of Brisbane bands after that, um, and so he was like a real staple in our Brisbane scene. And he he was really um very spot on. Like if you got something off the grid, he'd be like, "Let's do it again." So um, that was an interesting experience, just in precision, you know. <laughs>
0: That's a big challenge, isn't it? And if you're nervous and you haven't done that before yeah. and, and everybody's watching and listening yeah. and scrutinizing yeah. <laughs> what, what you're doing, that's bloody terrifying. Yeah.
2: that's re- yeah.
0: And, and possibly not the best set of circumstances to be getting your best vocal take. Yeah, down. that's right. I
2: think my, all my vocal takes are like, ah, 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 ah. like I was like, <laughs> really shaky.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah yeah paul the singer in our band sends out, he used to send everybody out didn't he send everybody out of the room when we oh, were yeah. recording stuff yeah. no one's allowed in it's just it was just me because i was recording and and yeah. and him yeah. um yeah I Go could've... and then but that just kind of elongates everything because then you have to get everybody back in and wait for everybody to come back in to listen and then everyone has to you know discuss it in front of him.
3: yeah <laughs>
1: That bit. Of uh, yeah. it, it reminds me. It reminds me of the first rehearsal with Paul, Steve, with like years and years ago. I think mm. there was four of us in the in the room, and uh, he downed a two liter bottle of really, really cheap, strong white cider. And he <laughs> he, had, he hadn't sung. He had in front of people. He, so about our uh, before our rehearsal, he sat there drinking for about all by the last fifteen minutes. When he was suddenly got up and started. Singing his head off in a, well, not the most tuneful fashion. Sorry, Paul. But, <laughs> was um, he but it was... was it
2: <laughs> I,
1: I, I, th- I, I think he was probably psychotic by that point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, side is a poor like choice. Yes, yeah,
1: Simon not a good choice. <laughs> he has a
0: wonderful voice. He, he does. He does. Very, he, he's, very easy, easy to record, and yeah, he's yeah an amazing indeed. vocalist. Indeed. Very yeah. Let's,
2: let's go on the record real quick, saying he's amazing. We all love him. Yeah. yeah. Was that a good
0: save? Do you think? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> he, he, know, he knows it already. He knows it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: lovely well, man as well. Lovely, lovely man. man. <laughs> Great holds hair. Holds his drink well.
1: <laughs> now these days. <laughs> What, what was the, what um, were the what were the ambitions for that band then, um, Saya? And and how far uh, did you take things?
2: I mean, I think we were all we were all so confident in that we were going to be massive. It was really funny when I think about it now. I think we were all like convinced we were going to sell our publishing for millions, you know, and I like we did. <clears throat> we got signed to a really cool record label called Modular, and Modular was so Modular was headed up by this guy called Steve Pav um, Pavlovic, and Steve Pav was uh, responsible for bringing Nirvana to Australia for the first time in '91, and he was, you know, he was a tour promoter and record label head, and he was really like the guy to get in with in Australia at the time. And, you know, subsequently, Pav was responsible for signing the Avalanches and signing Tame Impala. And, um, you know, he has incredibly amazing taste. So he was always like this guy that you wanted to get in with. And thankfully, somehow we caught his attention and we got signed to his label. And, um, And that meant a lot to us at the time. You know, that was like the coolest place to be. And at the time, it was yeah, it was like the Avalanche's, Cut Copy, us, um, a few other Australian bands, and um, and so we were just like, well, this is going to be huge. Like we're going to be huge, just like these other bands are going to be huge. And um, and I suppose what happened was we we started like we. We started playing a lot in Australia. We got all the coolest supports. We um, we toured overseas. We went to Japan. We went to Canada and the States a bunch. And and then um, EMI bought the label. Bought Modular or Modular became a subsidiary of EMI. And I think at that point um, there was just no money to give to. Um, to the the acts that weren't bringing in a lot of money and we got caught up in that and so we decided at the time I was like well where I guess we decided well if you can't give us the money to record our album then we will pay for it ourselves and take back uh, so take back our masters and I guess ultimately get dropped from that label and we thought like oh that would be fine um because we've got all this momentum and we'll, we'll put out the album with a different label and it'll be just as good. Um, and then it sort of wasn't, like, it didn't really do anything. And I think we were all a bit disappointed by how our first album went and possibly a bit of regret about how it all went down that maybe we should have stayed with Modular, who, you know, then ended up being... A massive massive label for years um so yeah so I I guess to answer your question we had enormous expectations and but in the end I mean we ended up doing a lot of overseas touring and there's something really rewarding about that in a different way you know like we never got to be like um we never got to sell our publishing for a million dollars but we got to make all of these long term connections we got to know what it's like to be you know in a bus for four months um in the states and Canada and um yeah there's like there's something really different about what progressed in our like the way that that band went on to be and I'm so thankful for it I don't think it would have been the same if we'd stayed on modular and so anyway I guess yeah it's a it's It could have gone one way, but I'm glad it went the other.
0: It sounds like a really, like a really rich experience um, that you've reconciled in a really, in a really healthy way. I I love the fact that.
2: (laughs) Have I reconciled (laughs) it in a, like I'm trying to convince myself? (laughs) (laughs) There was a hint of that
3: perhaps.
0: (laughs) It's tough though, isn't it? Because you do have to, you do have to do some, uh some um processing when you when you set your expectations so high and also invest so much time and energy into something that then becomes um affected um affected yeah. <laughs> not infected maybe infected as well by <laughs> the industry and by mm. having to deal with with that stuff where where the business comes in and and it all gets very sensible and serious, and and uh, and language is used about what you're doing and the way you're going about it that that hasn't been used up to now, and you have to you know a new filter gets put in front of it all, and you have to and you have to navigate through all of that stuff whilst holding on to the thing that um, brought you there in the first place. Yeah. And then when it does fall away, and when it does end up being not being what you wanted it to be, you do have to kind of find a way to reconcile that, and it's never. Well, it's difficult to do, isn't it?
2: Yes. I have probably just one major regret about that time. And I remember Pav saying to us, um, I really want you to work with Cornelius. And I remember we were all going, Oh, it's going to be really expensive. We were very responsible kids. You know, we were like, Oh, we don't want to get a huge um, debt. Uh, we'd heard a lot about our friends getting into debt with labels and it sounded like such a nightmare. And um, and I remember just we were like, oh, no, we can't work with Cornelius. It's going to be too expensive. And I think now I'm like, why the fuck didn't we work with Cornelius? That would have been so cool. And yeah, I'm such cool. a massive fan. And, um, yeah, that would have been interesting to see what came out of that. But that's the only real big regret that I have.
1: What what happened to Cornelius? Because I remember seeing him on the Phantasma Phantasma tour yeah. and stuff like it, and he was incredible. But is he he must still be making music somewhere? Is he someone you still yeah, follow?
2: Yeah, yeah. I heard something the other day that was incredible. And my, I mean, he, the Phantasma album was great, but then he made that album drop. Did you ever listen to that? No. Oh man, no. you got to listen to it when we get off this chat. It's amazing. It's um, it's so beautiful. And I saw him tour that album and it was the coolest. He had like a, um, uh, oh, sorry, I think it's called Point. The album's called Point. Um, he had this, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Stop <laughs> that, that <laughs> <laughs>
3: <That's
2: a> bit <laughs> out. Um, yeah, I saw him tour his album. And he had the, the cover of that album is just a white uh, background with a blue dot. And um, when I saw him play live, he had this sh- like sort of big sheet in front of the band that had the blue dot on it. And, and he was um, pointing, which is how I remember this called point. He was pointing at the, um, the dot and the dot would keep move kept moving. And it, oh, it was such a visual wow. joy. It was so beautiful. When yeah. you
1: started, when you started telling the story about um, deciding to to leave the label when EMI took over, I was thinking, oh, that sounds like an in, that sounds like the most intuitive, sensible thing to do. That you're taking control of things. I'm so gutted for you that it didn't work out. In you know, uh, although you know, like you said, it did work out to a certain extent because you had mm-hmm. all these amazing experiences that have enriched your life in terms of the connections. Those sort of yeah. the people that you met on those tours, are they some of those relationships stayed with you to this day?
2: Of course, yeah. And the the most lovely one is um, so there's this band that signed us to their Canadian label. The band is called the Saltines, and they were um, they were such a staple in our lives. We you know, we lived with them in Canada. We went on tour with them in Canada and the US. We spent so much time with them. We were signed to their label. Um, they came over to Australia to play with us. We went to Canada to play with them. It was like such a beautiful thing. And because we're all in our very early twenties when we met, it was such a formative time for us all. And, um, we've kept in touch with every single one of those people and now so beautifully my brother lives in Canada in Vancouver now with his family and you know and they all have kids similar age to my brother's kids and they all hang out and he's in business with one of them and like that so, it so we didn't realize how important that band would be to us and um, and they're still you know so you, we don't sometimes we don't see each other for years and then it's like nothing's changed. so there's definitely things like that that um that we all cherish and uh, you know, and that our lives wouldn't be like they are now if it wasn't for those types of connections. so yeah, and like I said, I think that um we were all we were too sensible when we were young, you know like we're we're all sort of living we never had that sort of rock and roll like let's fuck shit up, let's like, you know, fuck the consequences kind of thing. We were always very grown up, even in our early 20s and um, make, trying to make the right decisions financially. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a boring story, but it's also kind of exactly who we are.
0: <laughs> I, I, to, I totally recognize that uh, <laughs> from from my own experiences, at, you know, in the mid, mid-90s and the being in a band and negotiating record deals and bit and, and sort of being influenced. I think there was a bit of a culture of it. Maybe it was, things were changing,
2: uh, mm-hmm. moving
0: away from that. Uh, because, because there was still a lot of, in, well, in the, in, in the British music scene in that, at that time, there was still a lot of money sloshing mm-hmm. around, yeah, being awesome. thrown at stuff. Yeah. And so consequently, um, you sort of there was there was the lure of that <laughs> mm,
3: yeah. and so
0: you yeah and wanting and and wanting to be and yeah wanting to sort of make the most of that kind of opportunity and it sort of turns heads really and it, and mm. I and I admire how you uh, you talked about the 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 uh the creative side of things being the more important thing for you and the experiential stuff being more important yeah. for you because I, t- I totally recognize that as well do you, uh, and i guess that's that's you'll have carried that with you into subsequent projects and and being a creative person full, in the way that you are full-time and everything that you've done yes. um, as Yeah. um yeah i think to... that
2: yeah that's exactly it sorry to interrupt you no fair enough um <laughs> i um I think that is the most important thing and sometimes you forget that what is actually important is the making of the project you know I've just had I've just had that like I've just finished recording a solo album and I got so caught up in there like who's going to put it out and what are we going to do and what's you know and all of that like boring biz stuff that you have to think about um that I forgot that it's actually just so beautiful to be able to sit in this room that I'm in now and have all these beautiful instruments and experiment with them and and have those little wow moments when you when you find something that works you know like that's that's what you live for that's what those little moments where where you surprise yourself or you like that brings me so much joy and if you don't have that then you know then you quit it's not about it's not about the biz stuff like that stuff can make you sick but um it's when you stop having those little wow moments that's when you that's when you go okay I'm done like you've got to ignore all the other shit you just got to keep making
0: Yeah uh, that was one of the things that leapt out at me from your interview with um Gaz from Tropical F- Foxtorm Yeah uh, and uh, which is a, a band I mean I I I don't know. I, I saw Ben and I both sort of hero worship Gaz a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> oh, he's
3: extraordinary,
0: um, isn't he? Yeah. A, a, we absolutely. We played a show with them actually in what France a, oh. a, the last time we. I don't know how many years ago that was. Now, three or four three, years ago. Three years ago, mate. Yeah, three years ago. Yeah, and I was a big Drones fan as well. And then what we found out we were playing on the same bill, and I, I we pulled into the loading thing i don't know how did we get onto this i've forgotten how we even got onto this we pulled into the loading bay this gig in france and he was there sorting out his guitar
3: um
0: oh it was good with what he said in his pod in the podcast pulled mm-hmm. and i just I had to get out of the van and just go and say look i've got to get this out of the way now otherwise i'm not going to be able to concentrate but i think you're fucking great i really oh. love your music oh. blah, blah, blah. he's going all right nine I'm, I'm gas and oh, he would have
3: been and- happy
1: uh, and they were astonishing. Oh, what yeah. a band. What a band, though. I mean, yeah. aside, aside, from, yeah. aside from him, what a band. Ridiculous. Yeah. They're all great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, I've forgotten the guitar player's name. You've just interviewed Erica. her. Erica, Erica, thank you. Erica. Yeah. 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 Um, talking so, I mean, she's an astonishing guitar player. Just yeah. really, yes. yeah. so brilliant. And to go toe to toe with Gaz in that band playing guitar alongside somebody so uniquely brilliant on guitar but she is so modest about it and so understated about her her abilities in that interview with you and I think you coaxed out some really lovely (laughs) reactions from her about that that stuff um but uh, that just tracks back to what you were saying about having those moments of oh this is why I do it yeah because they yeah yeah. well
2: yeah because she erica was talking about um gaz trawling through um recordings and finding the mistakes in the recordings and making the oh, mistakes yeah. And things, yeah which i found so fascinating and i suppose that's quite like it's you can relate to that i think everybody has something where you go oh whoops and you go oh that sounds actually better than what i was trying to do <laughs> um you know I, I i love those moments those moments are so cool You know, or trying to. I have a song on my new record that I was recording a loop made by um, a like Eurorack modular setup, and it was just doing something really weird. And I'd recorded it for ages, and I just I was listening to the whole part, and then I just was like, oh, that small bit that sounds so weird. I just cut that up, and I that pretty much became the whole song. And because I loved it so much, um, I realized really quickly it was it wasn't in tune with any actual instruments. Like it was like modular. You can that happens quite often where you're like, oh, that's probably like it's less than a semitone out. It's like a microtonal amount out of um, th- the actual tune of things. And so um, I ended up having to tune all my instruments to the modular because Brilliant. I tried to tune the modular bit and it didn't. It just didn't sound right. Yeah. And so I ended up tuning, like I had to, all my guitars, I have heaps of guitars on this um, song. I had to tune it down two spots on my tuner, like just Uh, so it's like two microtones. And um, the bass I had to tune down to every synth in my studio that I played, I had to tune down two microtones. um, And it worked. did you enjoy that process it was really fun (laughs) yeah i mean i think that like towards the end i was like oh fuck my life this is annoying but um,
1: you can't wait to play that one live
2: yeah yeah (laughs) pretty funny though the things we do and if you find yourself you're like oh i've just spent a whole day tuning down instruments um but you came out with something really cool so that's the joy
0: yeah absolutely (laughs)
1: Talk, <laughs> talking about your your songwriting say in your bio you mm. talked about being awarded the uh, the awarded the um Grant mcclellan memorial fellowship yeah. and going to to New York to write for two months can you tell us a bit about that experience
2: yes so this is the most incredible thing that is offered in queensland where I live um basically every year they have um twenty five thousand dollar grant to um, to give to one person each year and you apply that to go to either London, Berlin or New York because those are the three places that Grant McLennan from the go-betweens was most inspired by and he lives in all three places. And so I guess the point of the grant the grant is to um, just sort of like experience maybe something that Grant McLennan would have experienced and, and find something great and bring it back to Queensland to... Uh, share with you know your peers so um so I went to I got it amazingly it's like a brutal process you have to go in for interviews and um anyway it was like quite involved and um and I was so overjoyed that I got it and I went to New York and I just had such an amazing time I've got this friend there this again about connections um years before a few years before that I had two really, I didn't really know that many people in New York, but I had two connections that were very, very random. So the first one was, um, I'll tell you the easier one to explain first. The first one was a guy, his name is Hisham, and he played in a this Nick Zinner-led project that I did at the Sydney Opera House um, called Four. So it was like, I think we had... 40 drummers and two synth players and so it was this like insanely hectic um, drum circle and and then I was sort of one of the two melodic elements in that project um, and it was four people from New York so it was Brian Chase from the Yeah Ye Years was one of the drummers, Hisham was the leader of it and Hisham did like a lot of stuff with the Boredoms and he did like a lot of experimental drum stuff before that he played in black dice. And anyway, long story short, Hasham and I kept in touch from that project. And, um, and he is just like such an incredible human being. And he's got, he's sort of got like fingers in so many pies. And when I, I had dinner with him the, the second night that I was there and as soon as I met up with him, actually, he was like, um, hey, what shoe size are you? And I, I was like, oh, why? And he was like, oh, it's just, I've just designed some shoes for um, Puma with Solange. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? You, like, he's just one of those people that he's just like, huh. he's just in just so many amazing projects all the time. So, um, so I had him and I really made um, a promise to myself that if he invited me to anything, I would just say yes. Um, and and we ended up going to so many amazing things together and um, you know we went to metal shows in Brooklyn and we went to Vogue things and you know it was like we went to all kinds of weird stuff and it and it was the coolest experience and my other really random person that I had um, was this guy called Cody and he I met him because um, he was the keyboard tech for Beyonce on his, on he, her real, like he was keyboard tech for Beyonce for years. And the, the way that I met him was um, I make these tiny felt instruments so, and, I, mm-hmm. and they're really, they're like miniatures of mainly analog synths um, out of felt and cotton. Um, I never use any glue for some reason. That was like some limitation I put on myself and um, anyway my friend uh, in Australia was doing wardrobe for um, part of that tour and I kept saying to her like oh can you maybe get me a ticket for Beyonce for Brisbane next week and she was like there's no way like I can't do it and I was like oh okay (laughs) I just really want to go and see Beyonce (laughs) and then um, one night she texted me and she was like "Um, I just did you one better I made friends with uh, Beyonce's keyboard tech, and I've shown him your nerdy felt instruments, and um, he's gonna text you when he comes to Brisbane. And I was like, oh my god, but I also like he's probably not going to, you know, mm. and um and then he did, and I mean this story I could tell for twenty minutes, but I'll tell you the super short version is I went to the show and it was amazing, and mm. um we kept in touch, and I gave him a little felt MS twenty to say thank you for the ticket and um and so he he was there and off tour at the time which was amazing timing cuz he'd been on tour for like 2 years and he took me to a bunch of places as well and and showed me like you know that there's a bunch of people from Beyonce's band that had um that would do like jazz shows in a little church and I went to those and wow it like just stuff that you would never know was happening if you didn't know those people so i was so fortunate to have um people show me around and and i was able to go to places and then i would just like during the day i would just sit and play songs or program beats or you know just do something productive i had a beautiful apartment in brooklyn uh that had a piano in it and um you know it was just it was such an amazing time was really great
0: that's fantastic yeah that's fantastic um it sounds like you uh you rang everything out of that you uh, that grant and the opportunity that you could yeah uh, I really did what a great opportunity yeah and I did like I'm glad you mentioned you sorry go ahead sorry
2: sorry. I was just gonna say I did a um I did a weird live film score with Brian from the AES and Hisham and that was really fun I did um I didn't play very many shows, but yeah, I just, I did a lot of writing. I met a lot of great people. Um, I was going to tell you something. Oh yeah. And that story that I think I told Robert um, in that interview, I had this beautiful grant moment, which was when I went to see Norman from teenage fan club and Joe Panisse play their little duo show uh, in Manhattan and they played "Finding You," which is my favorite go-between song. And Norman told the story on stage about how he learned how to play that song from Grant McLennan, and he had this beautiful like Grant story, and and everyone everyone was sort of almost in tears. And and he said, "And this is for our friend Saya." And and played it, and I just my heart just exploded into a thousand pieces. What a oh, perfect love moment! Oh, yeah, oh, that's
0: just great.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, well, look, we have we have rolled over the hour mark. Um, um, I'm glad you mentioned your um, your your felt keyboards because I, I I was totally enthralled by them when I was looking at the uh, and the the SH101 was particularly brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I'd like to see a Wasp keyboard appear on there at some point because yeah. that was my. The, I'll yeah. make you one.
3: <laughs> i think it would know. just it would
0: lend itself to, to your collection really nicely I, I have such fond memories of that keyboard just stabbing it trying to get that
2: off oh, they
0: were brilliant yeah yeah, yeah. with the little wooden surround one that the, mm. that, the original one really nice yeah. but that horrible <laughs> slidey keyboard that just never properly worked <laughs> um yeah but uh, we'll put a little link in the show notes to that to your page for that stuff because it's they are really gorgeous
2: thank you
0: um well look we yeah we are well over the hour mark and uh, we should probably um close out could you um thank you so much for doing this by the way it's been really lovely speaking with you um uh, and i feel like we could talk for a lot longer and I can definitely see why so many people have wanted to stay friends with you after after have oh, met you. It's really uh, lovely to talk to you. Um, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna listen to a demo. Are you happy for us to put the finished version on afterwards as well? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Well, could you could you tee that up for us and just explain the evolution of that song um, before people hear it?
2: Yes. Yeah, so this song, Heart Speed and Time. Um, the the demo that i did for this was probably around the time that i went to new york and um and i remember at the time i was learning to do Travis picking on the guitar cuz i'd never been very good at finger picking and Travis picking is sort of a bit of a like country sort of um bluegrass picking and i just learned how to do it and it was muscle memory for me at the time and so the demo of this song is me doing this Travis picking Um, on the guitar and um, and I think I just bought a drum tracks at the time as well sequential drum tracks and so the the drums in the demo are the drum tracks and I suppose uh oh yeah and the other thing that I was going to say about it was I, I think at the from the very first moment I started recording my first solo stuff I realized that a layered vocal was was really my sweet spot like I I suddenly became really obsessed with um Enya you know like that I know that sounds really daggy but um I I was so influenced by that layered sort of um the layered breathy vocal and um Caribbean Blue will forever be one of my all-time favorite songs by Enya but um so there's a lot of layered vocals going on in in the demo and in the final one and then when I recorded the final song, um, my brother produced the record. Mirko, I've talked about a bunch on the podcast already. Um, engineer, audio engineer extraordinaire. He's so clever. Um, he, we, yeah, we did a bunch of stuff. So we, we wrote an intro. There's a bit of speak and spell. We have a um, circuit broken it's speak nice. and spell. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's a MS-20 running baseline through it, which was a decision we made after, you know, saying I didn't, I really needed to stop holding down baselines. So this was like mm. a running baseline um, based on one of those conversations. Um, there's, there's a real um, thing that happens inside me when a, a synthesizer filter opens and closes and um, that happens on this baseline and it's still, when I was listening to it yesterday to prepare for this chat, I I was like, (laughs) like I could, I don't often listen to things that I make and go like, Oh, this is great. But the, just that baseline, um, still really gets me excited. Um, and then also Mirko had, um, suggested a key change, which I'd never done in a song before. So the key change towards the end before it goes into that, um, you only live twice, uh, keyboard solo ripoff bit so yeah i think that's um i think that's probably sets it up (laughs) enough yeah but it does change a lot
0: yes it's great to hear it's a really lovely evolution and thank you for sharing them both on the podcast ben have you got anything else you wanted to add
1: uh, no, well, I do, but I'm not going to ask it, so it's fine.
0: It's I know it's <laughs> a, it's attempt. I'm properly resisting. I've got some notes here and I'm resisting asking them. Um, but th- <laughs> so, thank you so much. <laughs> it's about ELO. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: I can't believe um, we didn't
2: mention Jeff Lynn He would be my other <laughs> podcast hero. To uh, yeah, uh, um, Jeff Lynn he, Paul McCartney. But yeah, Jeff, I'd be, I'd got, I'd fall in a heap.
1: They'll yeah. have one day. Come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you Sa, for coming on could you just yeah, thanks, uh, can you just introduce the song for us please and um yeah thanks so much for being on the show
2: thank you this is uh this song is called hearts beat in time off the album all our wires thanks Saya.
0: thanks thank Sarah.
2: you